You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. So uh, we are starting the book of Philippians today. Really excited about this. Uh, if you've been here before, we've the whole last year we were in the book of Mark. The first year of the church, we were in the gospel of Mark, and it was so rich. The story of Jesus, just getting this firsthand account of our Lord and Savior. And we're transitioning to the book of Philippians now. And so once again, we're going to systematically each Sunday work through verse by verse, chapter by chapter in the book And uh, if you know anything about Philippians, it's probably one of your favorite. Um, It's up there for sure. I know it is for me. It's been really formative to my own walk, to my own life ever since I got saved in middle school. And uh, when I became a youth pastor uh, about 12 years ago at 21, uh, you know, I was kind of scrambling like, what book should I teach? And it was Philippians. Philippians is the first book of the Bible I've ever taught, and so um, it's really special to me in that way. And as we kind of took the time praying over where the Lord would lead us this next season, it was really obvious to jump into the letter of joy that Paul writes to the church at Philippi. And so um, if you know anything about the book of Philippians, I'm sure... Even some of you maybe have a coffee mug with verses from Philippians, a t-shirt, or even some of you, because we have a lot of tattooed people in our room, uh, you may even have a Philippians verse tattooed on your body. Um, it's, it's up there with the most like coffee mug tattooed verses ever, the book of Philippians. And so the next several months are going to be amazing. Um, so what I want to do before we get into it, we're actually only going to do two verses today, Philippians 1 and 2. Um, is I want to start by actually reading a big part of Proverbs chapter three. And I want to do this because I want to start, before we jump into it, I want to remind ourselves of the value, the incredible value of knowing, studying, and obeying scripture. And I want Proverbs 3, to to really form the understanding of why we spend the bulk of our Sunday morning in the Word of God. Because we do. We spend like half of our service in the Word of God every Sunday. And there's a reason why we do that. So I'm going to read out of Proverbs chapter 3, quite a few verses. It's up on the PowerPoint. But let these words sink in and remind us of the value of the Word of God. It says this, Proverbs 3. Speaking of the word of God, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you, but bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find uh, favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil and it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in the left hand are riches and honor. 
Her ways are pleasant ways and her paths are peace. She is the tree of life for those who take hold of her. And happy are those who hold her fast. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. My son, let not... Uh, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion so they will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's refreshment to our bones. That we, were, that we were made to live by your leading, by your word. And so God, as we, as we jump into this new book, we pray, Lord, that we would treasure it as Solomon spoke of in the book of Proverbs. That we would desire it above all else. That we would live by it. That we would know it. That we would obey it. That we would not stray from your word, but that we would, we would adorn it around our neck and write it on the tablet of our heart. Would you do that in us today? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of my roles and goals as a pastor, obviously, is, is to teach you guys the word of God, right? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and we do that by, by expositorily teaching the word of God. Not my words, but by God's word. Try to teach it for you guys. But more than that, more than that, my goal, my, my desire is that I would help stir up and spur on excitement and value in God's word for yourself. Like that it wouldn't just be this thing that you only open up on when, when, you, when you hear the sermon on Sundays, but that God's word would be as valuable as Solomon just spoke of that we would truly treasure it above all else. And my ultimate goal is that you, through, through the way I teach, would understand and know how to read it for yourself. It doesn't take a rocket scientist, it really doesn't. And it can be daunting and it can be overwhelming, but it is for us, it's God's word for us. And I love it. I love expanding God's word in a simple way. I think that's what it's intended for. I think we're really good at complicating the word of God. It's really easy to do that. It's really easy to complicate it and make it messy and make it confusing. I love expanding it in a way that's understandable because I think that's the way it's intended for humanity to understand God's will and his intention and his love for us. And so for this intro into the book of Philippians, and I'm going to attempt to do that. I hope it won't be too dry. Uh, but there's so much significance if we can understand, even before we get into it, like what is happening and what's, what's the overall meaning and context of what's going on, like the, the who, the what, the where, the why, and the when of this book. Before we even get into that, there's two things that I want to talk about. And this is kind of more general Bible stuff, but it's really important. And the goal is, right, to teach you guys a little bit more about how to read the Bible on your own. There's two things I want to talk about. One is the literary style of the different books of the Bible. 
There's different literary genres and styles. It's really important that we know that and know the meaning of what you're reading. And also the context of the book is so important that we know, that we don't just jump in blindly and just go in for it, but we understand who wrote it and what was the audience. And we're going to do all this before we even get into the content. And so we're going to go slow and steady through and try to dig in and and, uh, get everything we can out of it. And we're going to go over that probably till around Easter in the spring. Like it's only four chapters. I know. So, but yes, that's cool. That's what we're going to do. We're just going to go slow and dig in and chew on everything that God has. So if you guys didn't know, most of you may, but the Bible consists of 66 different books that's compiled together in what we have sitting in front of you, Old Testament and New Testament. And each of these 66 books has its unique literary genre. And and it's kind of broken up. Like, for instance, narratives make up 43% of the Bible. Mark was a narrative. It was a historical narrative of what happened with Jesus. Narratives make up 43% of the Bible. Then there's poetry. Poetry makes up 33% of the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. But books like Psalms and Proverbs and the Prophets... Poetry actually makes up one out of every three chapters of scripture. And what poetry is doing is helping us envision what's happening visually. And then the rest, the end of 24%, is speeches, letters, and essays. These are logical reasonings about the narratives. But the Bible consists of all these things. There's different literary genres. And most of these books actually have a couple literary genres in there. There's combinations of it. And the reason why that's important, it's the reason why it's it's important that you know that you're reading poetry compared to a narrative, is you're mindful of what to pay attention to or what questions to ask, right? The way in which you read each book will be different. I mean, we don't really have, well, we kind of do have bookstores, but... um, It's kind of a thing of the past, unfortunately. But you go into a bookstore, and there's different sections, right? And if you're looking for a certain book, you obviously are looking for what you're looking for. So if it's nonfiction, or if it's a documentary, or if it's sci-fi, when you grab the book, you're going to have a preconceived idea of, okay, it's sci-fi. So this is probably not true. This is not a documentary, and you're going to read it differently, obviously. Maybe some more contemporary would be like Netflix, right? You open up Netflix... And you're like, what do I want to watch? And they're like, well, I don't know. Let me tell you. A comedy? Is it a TV show? Is it, you know, a thriller, a new release? So there's all these genres that you automatically are picking from. And it's important to understand each genre. Get what I'm saying? Yes, it's important. So Philippians is an epistle, or in other words, a letter. Paul, which we'll learn about in a bit, uh, he's, a, he's the one that wrote this, Paul wrote 13 books, actually letters, of the New Testament. So a large portion of the New Testament was written by Paul the Apostle, Philippians, one of those. All these letters, I have them up here. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philemon, Galatians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. All 13 of these books are letters. They're letters. They're each a letter that is written either to a certain person or a certain church or a certain group of people. The people in this would be 
Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. These are, these are guys. These are, these are Paul's guys that he's writing a letter to, a very personal letter to. The rest are two churches in the cities of Rome and Corinth and Galatia and Philippi and Thessalonica and Ephesus and Colossae. I'm hoping that you see, oh, 1 Corinthians, that's a letter to a church in the city of Colossae. It's not just random books. The Bible can be so daunting, and my hope is to make the Bible less daunting and more readable for you. My hope is to turn it into something that you read daily and are intrigued by and jump into. But what's neat is when we read the book of Philippians and we study it each week, remember that it is a penned letter by a man to a certain group of people. And this is 2,000 years ago. This is like for sure snail mail, slower than snail mail. Like there ain't no, there's no other form of communication than a letter written. And I mean, think about it. I don't know the details, but just the supplies that you needed to write a letter right? Paper. What is that even? Parchment, scrolls, ink, quill. I don't even know. I honestly don't know. You just seen the movies. You hear about it. <laughs> but a letter took a ton of thought, a ton of time, and a ton of effort to acquire the materials, to write, to send. I mean, this was a huge process. Not a quick email, not a quick text, not even snail mail, slower than snail mail. This is what we're looking at today. And so my hope is that we would be able to understand and figure this out. And so as you guys continue to read the Bible, know what you're reading. That's what I'm saying. Like the book of the Bible you're reading, figure out what it is. Try to understand that, oh, because it'll help you understand it more if you know what you're reading. Oh, is this prophecy? Is this poetry? Is this a narrative? Is this a letter? Secondly, you guys with me? Okay. The context of the letter. If you're a human, you know that context in communication is everything. If you walk up to a conversation and you hear something kind of strange, it's probably because it was out of context. Example, say you, I don't know where you are. You're walking around. Say you're at the curb, coffee shop. And all of a sudden you overhear, maybe you're eavesdropping, you overhear a woman say, I'm going to kill him. Okay, a couple things could be going on in that conversation. Number one, you could go through your head. It could be like this mom has a teenage son that told her to clean his room, and he just got a text that he's not cleaning his room. He actually skipped school, and so the mom says to her friend at the coffee table, I'm going to kill him. doesn't really mean she's actually going to kill him, but she's really mad at her son, teenage son. Or it could have been like she just got a new dog and the dog's potty training and they're trying to get the dog to figure out not to go to the bathroom where she shouldn't go to the bathroom. And they just got a text or something that the dog had gone to the bathroom again. And so in a fury, little anger, she's like, I'm going to kill him. Even this little cute puppy, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> could be that. Could be that. I know, dog, I know a couple of people are dog people here. I'm sorry. I don't mean that. I'm not going to kill a dog. We're not. Or... Or you may have just overheard a murder plot. She might have just said, I'm going to kill him, and it might really mean she's going to kill her husband. Honestly. And it's probably not going to happen either. But you understand, you just jumped in out of context, you have no idea about the context. Okay, a long analogy. Kind of worked, I think. Context. 
in any type of communication is so important, especially when we're reading the Bible. Here's the danger of what we love to do. We love to do this. We have a Bible. We're like, I got to read my Bible. What do we do? We don't know where to read. So we go, I gave the same message to Zedekiah, king of Judah. I said, bow your neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon. You're like, okay, you know what that means? That means today I have to bow my head before my boss, before that's what God means to me. No, no, that's not what this means. I mean, that's not what that means. That's called proof texting. Proof texting is a really bad way to read the Bible. What happens is we go in, we read one verse out of context, and then we interpret that verse set by itself. Bad way to read the Bible. We get it wrong a lot of times. So what's the right way? The right way to read the Bible and read scripture is to read the verses preceding it and the verses following that verse. And even better, read the chapter and even better, figure out the book that you're in. No, it's honestly, this is, this is the point. In order to go deep into God's word correctly, you first need a 30,000 foot view, a broad overarching idea of what's happening or else you'll miss the context. And even if you're pretty good and you guessed right, you're gonna miss the significance of it. It's so rich, it's so amazing. There's so much more to it if you understand the context of what's happening. Are you with me? Okay, so Philippians 1 and 2 gives us this 30,000 foot view of what's happening. So Philippians 1, 1 and 2, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, excuse me, deacons, deacons, I don't know, that's the thing, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, we, we, we literally can't go on from there. We'll miss it. We'll miss much of everything that happens in the book of Philippians unless we look at a few things. Here's a few things that we gotta get that we're gonna go through. Number one is the author who wrote this letter. It's a letter, who wrote it? Very important. Number two is the author's circumstances really play into the book of Philippians, the letter to the church. The original recipients of the letter, like who's this letter written to and what are their circumstances? It's super important. So the first is a, a brother Paul, Paul the apostle. He's the author. He's the author of this. Paul, though, was not always named Paul. Paul, prior to coming to Christ, was known as Saul, actually Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus being in the city which, where, he, where he came from. So prior to Paul the Apostle, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. And he was one of the most educated and prominent Jews of the time. I mean, he was so zealous. He was so good. I mean, we're going to read in Philippians 3 his credentials. But he was the Jew of Jews. Super Jew. This is Paul. I mean, he was so zealous about it. He was looked up to. He studied under the best rabbi. And he became so zealous for Judaism that he became a persecutor of Christians and Jesus' followers. And he was really good at it. He was a really good persecutor. And we actually famously see a glimpse of him at the first martyr, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7. 
When we see the stoning of Peter, we see this first glimpse of this man named Saul. I want, I want to look at that. Acts 7, 57 through 60, speaking of, of, of Stephen being killed for his faith, he says this. It says this. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him, speaking of Stephen. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of who? A young man named Saul. Saul was witnessing and participating in the first Christian martyr. The same Paul the Apostle was Saul of Tarsus. And it says, as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with his, this sin. And with that, he died. And Saul witnessed this whole thing. Saul was known for, he was good at persecuting Christians, and there was this one time he was on the road to Damascus, Syria, and he had an encounter with Christ that would change everything. I'm actually going to read this section of Acts chapter 9 to you. It's a big section, but it's so important that we see the conversion of Paul the apostle here. Uh, have it on the PowerPoint. Acts chapter 9, it says this. Now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of, at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, Christians, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and, through his eye, and, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. And it was three days without sight. He neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. That's a cool name, Straight Street. And inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Paul, for he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named, um, no, yeah, for he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here... And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings of the sons of Israel. For I will show him much, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed from the house. He entered and he laid hands on him saying, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell, his eye, uh, fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. He got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately Paul began to 
proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not who was in Jerusalem, destroyed those, those who called on his name, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul, now Paul, kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. This was the defining moment in the life of Paul and really in the history of the world. This was the defining moment, his conversion, where he was dead and now he's alive and he's now Paul and he was Saul. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul's conversion experience. This is the man that's writing this letter. And currently, Paul's circumstances is prison. Paul is writing this letter, this converted on fire, go get him, Paul, is converted. He's in prison, and he's radically living for Jesus. He's actually been arrested for it, and he's going, and he's teaching, and he's preaching, and he's healing, and he's starting churches, and he gets arrested for it. And he gets taken to Rome, and this letter is written from his prison cell in Rome. And if we look into the content, which we will, into the next weeks and months as they come, we will understand that almost all that Paul speaks of is this inexpressible joy, to rejoice always, to let joy abound. And if you think of his circumstances, it is so odd. Like if we were in prison, if we were in his same place, it would be hard-pressed that any of us would say we would write the same thing. But as time goes on, we need to remember that Paul is in prison writing this letter. And he's seen the craziest things. We'll see it. We'll read a whole list. And your life is for sure not as hard. He has experienced such persecution and such trials. Paul's fate is not certain at all. Is actually what's, what's going to happen is Paul will be beheaded in a few years by the hands of Emperor Nero right after this letter was written in a short few years' time. But he's currently in prison, going to martyrdom, and he's writing this letter to the holy people in Philippi. And Philippi is a special place for Paul. Philippi was a church that started... Some 10 years earlier, when he was on his second missionary journey, Paul, Paul would do this. Paul would go where God told him to go. He was led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and he would travel much uh, far, far away from Jerusalem, far away from Israel, and he would go on these missionary journeys. And 10 years earlier, earlier than this letter was written, Paul and Silas, called by God to go to the city of Philippi, and uh, I'm going to read you again Acts 16. This is where we see this. But this is the start of this little church. This, 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 these holy people that Paul is writing to in the church in Philippi. Uh, Acts 16 says it this way. This is Paul on his second missionary journey. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him. Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. He boarded a, bo a boat at Troas and sailed straight across the island of that island. And the next day he landed at Neopol Neopolis. From there he reached Philippi, right? Philippi. This was a major city of that district of Macedonia and it was a Roman colony. And he stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath, he went a little way outside of the city to a riverbank where he thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we, we, and we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. And as she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized and she asked to be her guest, asked us to be her guests. If you agree what I'm, uh, that I am a true believer of the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. Then in Acts 16, Paul and Silas get arrested and they miraculously get broken out. It's unbelievable. Sorry, skipping ahead for time. Verse 40, when Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia, where they met with the believers and encouraged them once more, and then they left town. That is how they started the church. Lydia, this, this woman, was just praying. She got saved. She invited people into her house. She started praying. She started worshiping. Paul kind of hung out for a few days, and these women just went for it. And the church had grown. There was elders and deacons and leaders, and it was a full-fledged church. And so Paul is writing back now to the same group that's now become a larger group in the city of Philippi. And Philippi, as you saw, was in Macedonia. Macedonia is Europe. This was the first church planted in Europe with the gospel. This is the church at Philippi. It was very strategic. It was full of trade. It was full of tra uh, traffic. And God was very strategic to have Paul plant this church here in Philippi. This is where a lot of Romans went to retire and enjoy it in Europe. Um, and they worshiped Caesar. That was their king. These believers, they worshiped another king. And because of that, they worshiped King Jesus. There was a lot of persecution. There was a lot of hardship. But the church was birthed in suffering. It was birthed in persecution. And it only grew from that time. These are the people that Paul is writing to. He has a very intimate knowledge of the start of the church. He started the church himself alongside Lydia at her house. And what's been happening for these 10 years is the church is growing through hardship, through persecution, in a foreign land, believers are worshiping and they're praying and people are getting saved and the church is growing. And even in the midst of all that Paul is going through, right, Paul is now in Rome, he's imprisoned, he might die, he is going to die, and he thinks of the Philippians. He's reminded of this church started in Lydia's house. And he's concerned about them, not in a bad way, not in a negative way, but he so badly wants them to continue to grow, to continue to follow Jesus despite the obstacles. You know, a lot of Paul's letters are kind of like rebukes. 
You read a lot of them and you're like, oh my gosh, this church is just going off the rails. Right? They're, they're, they're so off. The leadership's bad. They're like all, it's just it's going, it's going wacky. Whether it's Galatians or 1 Corinthians or whatever, you read these letters and they're rebukes, they're corrections. They're written from Paul like saying, dude, you cannot do that. That's not right. That's not the way in which it should be. But Philippians is not that way. He's not writing in a corrective way. He's writing in a very real, encouraging way. Knowing how the church started, knowing what they've been through, and knowing what they will go through, he's writing this letter. And it's a push. It's an encouragement. It's a charge for them to grow in Christ and live radically for him. And despite what they would come against or what they might endure, Paul's word for them, there's one word to sum up the book of Philippians, it's joy. 19 times in four chapters, Paul the apostle reminds them, be joyful, rejoice always, be thankful, don't forget, keep your eyes on Jesus, but rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And as much as this is a letter written to a church in Philippi, this is a letter written to Reality Honolulu. This is a letter that God has preserved for us and every truth in it and every verse in it is for us. And we, like Philippi, we're a growing church and the word for us this season is joy. That's the word for our church this season. And if you know anybody in this church, you know that we're going through some really gnarly things. There's some really heavy burdens going on in our families, in our personal lives. But the word for us in the midst of all that is rejoice. Rejoice in who God is and what he's done despite all of that. And if there's anything that God wants to do in us is give us the supernatural joy and peace that surpasses all understanding. Joy in the midst of life and in the continued pursuit towards the prize of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, which we'll get there in a couple months, verses 12 and 13 says this. This is Paul. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Let's do that as a church this season. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter. Thank you for where you have us. And God, as we start this new season in the book of Philippians. I pray that each of us would endeavor in our hearts to lay before you all of our own circumstances, all of our financial issues, the sickness that we're dealing with, the relational conflicts that we have, all, all the drama, all the stuff that we're worried and anxious about. All the things that may be causing us strife and angst. God, we give you those things. We, we want to lay them down at your feet. And not only do we want to release them to you, 
but we ask that you would give us your supernatural joy in the midst of trial. In the midst of anxiety, you would give us peace. In the midst of hopelessness, you would give us hope. In the midst of death, you would give us life. Thank you that you're able to change even a person like Saul into Paul. And because of that, there is no one that's too far off. There's none of us that are too far gone. And Lord, we pray that this book and your son, Paul, and his life would be an example for us. God, we, we want to worship you now for who you are and what you've done and what you will do. So God, we ask that we would take this time to respond to you now in worship for the ways in which you've spoken to us. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.